Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Rwandri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We'd like to recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It is Wednesday the 26th of February and you're listening to 3CR Radio. Wow. And in the studio we have Rob. Jess. And Edwin. Welcome. Happy days. Happy days. <laughs> How have always been? Well, first off, I want to give my tram anecdote from this morning. Oh, yes. I'm very proud. Uh, so I travel on the 109, which apparently recently, it's, it's been such a wonderful, sturdy line for, mm-hmm. for two years now, yeah. but recently it's become cursed and <laughs> things keep happening. So, I mean, one of them was my fault. I slept in too late. So I'll take that one. <laughs> 109, that's not you. Uh, but this morning I woke up, got to my tram stop. Stepped onto it, and then we got to like halfway down the line, and all of a sudden just changed directions. Fun. Our driver had said something like, "Oh, blah 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 blah." Accident. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to piece together all the different words. Yeah, he like he like mumbled it and then got off the tram, and I was like, "Eh." (laughs) "Didn't want to deal with that." Yeah, somebody else, like another tram driver, got on. And yeah, we just start travelling down instead of the 109, we start travelling down the 48. Mm. And I'm freaking out. (laughs) The only other time I've ever really, really been late to the station, I accidentally got off the tram depot and got on the 48 tram. Because I was like, oh, maybe this will go and maybe this will be faster. Ha ha ha, right? So I got off, got on the wrong tram. And then I remember this is Will being in studio alone Mm. last year. Me bolting from the 48 tram stop to the 109 tram stop, (laughs) being like banging on the side of the tram, being like, I need to get to the station. Right, anyway, anyway. I feel like this is the most detailed response we've ever had to how was your week. Yeah. (laughs) Quite a while. (laughs) I'm sorry. And it wasn't even your week, it was your morning. I've got this pent-up energy on the the 109 tram. And so, yeah, today we ended up on the 48. Long story short, I got off at Jollymont and then just like booked it up the street to the studio. (laughs) Jollymont Station, because it connects kind of up where we are. Um, But yeah, I I don't know. I like, look, because Rob is doing such a wonderful job at opening the show. I've been like, I can get the later tram. Apparently, no. No, I can't. It is not happening. The moral of the story is I need to be getting up. (laughs) It's sending a signal. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Sorry to um, hijack that. No, no. No. It's more exciting than anything. Well, what's been going on with you guys? Anything well, good? Well, actually, I've came across some really interesting knowledge I found this week. Ooh. So a friend sent me a link. Um, it's a new book that's come out about indigenous architecture. Oh. And it's talking about all these examples across the world of really well-designed, obviously well-designed, like designs that respond to the landscape. Mm. And it's sort of saying how these are sort of techniques and traditions that have been lost but should be used in helping to address climate change mm. and sustainability issues. Yeah, we were talking about that on Sunday, actually. We were yeah. talking about that. Yeah. yeah. So, what, what you do with your space. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really excited to mm. try and get a copy of that and have a read of that. So. Yeah, well, the other thing I was going to say that I've got um, is an article I was reading mm-hmm. about the history of bows, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we always picture little girls with bows. Yes. 
It's it's very much innocent. Yep, a dominant, a dominant social portrayal, Mm -hmm. media portrayal. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was reading about the long history, long-winded history of bows, and it's really fun because it's like a game of badminton, um, being hit back between the sexes. So at one point it's like boys wear bows, and it becomes girls wears bows, and it becomes boys (laughs) wear bows. And um, it's just a delightful little article. I'll stick it in the rundown. But it's just like um, it's it's really interesting how it's it talks about different times and fashion mm. history and the significance of it because okay. it's kind of like we always think of girls right yep. yeah but they're like well that's really been enforced by like 984 pac-man right mm, right because they need someone to distinguish pac-man from like girl pac-man it's <laughs> <laughs> like so girl pac-man had a yeah. boat right because when you think about it, like colonialist sort of areas and like the monarchs yeah. or like, oh, the males predominantly also had bows in their hair when i think about it Absolutely. like, yeah. like the 1700s sort of, yeah way back when yeah yeah a lot of boys have bows, and it was all because, you know, you, you had to have, like, your, your kind of, your, your long hair with your, like, yeah. it was very fashionable. Interesting. Well, um, I wonder if there's going to be a bow resurgence across uh, all genders soon, so then it just, like, sort of, like, ends the that. discussion. And it might, because I know, for me, I cut any bows off. Like, I'm I'm savage. I, <laughs> you know how, like... So you prefer to be bowless. I lo- yeah, I do, because a lot of women's clothing comes with little tiny bows, and I'm like, mm. <laughs> they, they're going. <laughs> <laughs> but... My partner is like, no, I love bows, and like I can stitch them onto your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so Times yeah, who knows? Yeah. Times are changing. Yes. Maybe we'll see a great bow surgeons. Bow could resurgence. be exciting. We'll see. Mm. Yeah. But before the bow surgeons, what do we have on the show today? <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> so at 7.15, uh, Music Sans Frontiers, or MSF, which is another great 3CR show, spoke with Luisa Sobral, mm. who is a Portuguese singer and songwriter. So she'll be speaking about her music and the influences behind her music. Then at 7.30, we have Dr. Tasha Finney, who is an urbanist, and she's going to be speaking about housing and more alternative housing models and mm. how housing can help address the ecological crisis. Yeah, so that should be quite interesting. Lot. It's a lot in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 7.45, we've got Susan Harder coming in. You might recognise the name. Susan Harder's from the Australian Conservation Foundation and kicks ass, so she's coming in to talk to us about uh, a few different stories, so all environmental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at 8 o'clock, Andrew Bartlett, who is a former Queensland senator and who works for currently the... What am I saying? Brisbane Assange... Uh, action group in Queensland. Mm. He is joining us to chat about, obviously, the recent case of Julian Assange and him being extradited to court in London this week. Um, he also chats about the protest that was held at the British consulate in Brisbane on Monday. And really, we're just going to chat about the issues of government needing to defend a free press, journalists mm. and whistleblowers, which is very important. It's so, uh, it's yeah. so important right now as <laughs> yeah. well. With like we the, really AF- that, yeah. the AFP raids, like, was it last week being pushed through as, like, acceptable legal? Mm-hmm. Did you mm. hear that? Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's just like... And the ongoing persecution of our whistleblowers mm. in Australia. Yeah, it's definitely. So that'll be a really interesting chat, I think. Definitely something to chat on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then at 8.12, we've got Maya Newell, who is the director of a documentary called In My Blood, and she'll be exposing Australia's educa- education system and how it's failing Aboriginal children. Mm. So we've got a packed show today. Mm. Um, but first up, we've got a song. It's called Chills by Leah Flanagan. Little chills 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we've got our first interview with Louisa Sobral. So Music Sands Frontiers, or MSF, which is another 3CR show, spoke with her earlier this week, and she is a Portuguese singer and songwriter, and we'll be speaking about the influences behind some of the music and what really inspires her to write. Louisa Sobral. 
Thank you so much for making yourself available to chat with me today. Uh, it's great to have this opportunity. Now, oh, thank you for the, the invitation. <laughs> so, in Portugal, you uh, have become very famous in about the last nine years, I think, and you've had some amazing, uh, wonderful responses to your music. Can you tell us what got you started on on writing your own music and, and performing it? How I started? Mm. Um, well, um, I don't know. I started when I was 12, writing my music. I started when I, when I learned the guitar. Um, I always felt that uh, I didn't want to play just um, songs from others that I learned on the guitar. I always felt that urge, that need to write my own music. So when I started playing some chords on the guitar, immediately I started wanting to to write my own lyrics and and say my own things. So um, it started when I was 12. It was kind of like a, a necessity more than anything, I guess. And so um, I started doing that at that age. And then, um, and then I, I think I hope that I that I just um, I took this time to improve. Um, uh, I don't know. I start, I'm writing different things now. The first song I wrote when I was 12 was about my own divorce, which was very tragic. Uh, <laughs> since I was 12, I, I didn't I get divorced at 12. I just don't know. You, you weren't at <laughs> I that don't stage know. married. I <laughs> no, I wasn't. No, uh, but I don't know. I was very dramatic. I was always very dramatic when I when I wrote, and I'm still a little dramatic actually. Um, but I always like to to write more about, I guess, the sad things. I, I always find them more beautiful, and so that's something that I'm working on actually, because I kind of want to have a more bright side, because I have that in me, but just not sometimes in my music. Um, but yeah, so I started then, and then I went to study, um, and then I was in this uh, television competition when I was 16, and this, like, American Idol, but in Portugal, and uh, and after that, I realized, no, 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 I really need to go and study, because I don't want to go down this path, this is not, this is not me, I want to be a full artist, and I want to know what I'm talking about when I talk to other musicians, and so I want to learn music, and then I went to the U.S., I went to Boston, to Berkeley College of Music, and I studied there. Uh, I did the four years there, uh, graduated, and then I, I got back to Portugal and I, I, I recorded my first album. And um, and yeah, and I've I have recorded five albums um, now, so everything is going great. <laughs> Indeed, and you worked with your brother on one song that became very famous. Yes, I was. Uh, it was a, a very interesting part of my life because um, they invited me. There's this competition in Portugal that is called Festival de Canção, and that that competition um, chooses the song that goes to Eurovision. And so that um, two years ago, I guess, or three years ago, they invited a few co- composers that are famous in Portugal uh, to write songs because uh, that the songs that were going to Eurovision to represent us. We didn't really feel that they represented us as like uh, as musicians. So they invited musicians that were doing things at the time in Portugal that 
could actually represent the music that was being played in Portugal. So I, I, I was invited, and I said, yeah, right. Why, why, why am I always saying that, that the music that goes is, is bad, and I don't try to do something different? So so I, I wrote a song, and everyone, uh, all my friends and all my family said, uh, well, this song, you know, this song will never... We'll never make it because it's very beautiful, but it's not Eurovision-like. And I said, well, that's fine by me because I, I don't want – I'm not going to write something Eurovision-like. I'm going to write something like myself so and like my brother. So then I invited my brother. He sang the song, and it was a huge success here in Portugal. We ended up winning that competition, and we had ended up going to Eurovision, which was something really crazy for us because I – I couldn't imagine going to Eurovision. It's like because it has nothing to do with my music. I never pictured myself somewhere like that. And it's not that I'm judging. I'm not saying that it's bad. It's just not like me. The, the music that they make there is very different than the one I make. So we 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 knew that we were the the odd people uh, there, not them. You know, we were the odd ones. So, uh, but well, we ended up winning Eurovision, <laughs> or he ended up winning Eurovision. I don't know. <laughs> and uh and yeah that was a crazy that was really crazy because i'm i'm i plan almost everything in my life and uh the things that are unplanned are always really amazing for me because uh i don't know because i cannot predict anything so i guess that's a good thing that is i mean that's a a, a wonderful amazing thing to happen isn't it and eurovision is such a a bizarre competition in in so many ways. So it's fabulous to have what I I, I see your work as very stripped back in a way. Uh, yeah, and and because but we knew that the bizarre thing was the normal thing there, you know. So we were <laughs> abnormal, I guess. And I was always telling my brother that when when he started judging something, or I said, "We are the odd ones here. You don't have to criticize. They are they are okay. They are in the right place. You know, we are not. So I guess we have to we had to embrace that and and have fun. I guess that was the thing. We just had to try to have fun, and it was fun because I don't think we'll ever be in something like that again. So it was just. I don't know. I think when life gives you those kind of things that are really odd, you just have to enjoy them and try to see what they can bring to your life, you know. So it was really fun. It was an amazing family moment because all my family was there, my parents, my husband, my son, like everyone was there. So it was really, really cool. I don't I don't know if we'll ever have like a, a trip like that all together again. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So since then, you've actually produced quite a body of work um, and you are touring to Australia with your most recent recording which is Rosa do you want to tell us a bit yeah. about that that's part of part of that is a collaboration I believe uh, well my albums are always a collaboration with a producer this one is not really special in that sense it's the same thing so uh, it's called Rosa because it uh, means rose. It's the name of my daughter. So um, so the album is, is like, like uh, dedicated to her. And um, this album is very, I wanted, I wanted something very, very like um, simple and very straightforward and, and very um, like without uh, all the ornaments and everything that people are, 
kind of now putting into music. You know, I, I, I wanted to do something different because I felt different. I went to see this concert with this Spanish singer that I really like. She, her name is Silvia Perez Cruz. And I really like her, and I and I saw a concert of hers that was just her with a um, string quartet, and it was one of the most beautiful concerts I've ever seen. So I thought, what what is what it what is it about this music that really moved me during this concert? And and I I and I thought, I guess it's that. I guess it's the emptiness, like the um, the space, the the space there is for you to feel, you know, and not for someone to tell you what to feel. I guess. That that was the most um, amazing thing I took from that concert, and and so I decided to put that in in my own album as well. That space, that um, I don't know that um, that air that has sound as well. That everything can breathe, and and you can hear the lyrics, and you can connect to the lyrics. And I don't know. I I really wanted something very very simple, uh, which is uh, it's like um, people tell me in makeup. Uh, makeup artists always tell me that the one that um, is supposed to, the simple makeup is the hardest to make and I guess it's the same thing in music for it to, to be natural is the hardest thing to do so I guess um, but at, at the same time we recorded me and uh, Raul the, the producer we recorded almost everything together I didn't really do any edits because I, I believe that all the flaws that the voice has or whatever are are because I was feeling that in the moment. So I, I think that's beautiful when when you can hear someone like a flaw of like uh, my I, me trying to catch my breath or whatever. I I find that beautiful. So um, a lot of those things are in it, and um, and that's the way now I I see music and I hear music. So this album is very very truthful in in every sense you know so i'm i really like to play it live as well and that's what i've really loved about it that uh the naturalness of the sound and the space uh as you say i find it very appealing and i'm very much looking forward to hearing you uh when you actually get oh that's great that it came across that's good that it came across what i was trying to <laughs> to accomplish <laughs> and it seems to me louisa although i don't understand the, the Portuguese in which you sing, that um, that you are very much a storyteller. Where do your stories come from? Yes. Well, sometimes I steal them from people. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you're my friend, you have to be very careful what you tell me because it might end up in a song. Um, but I think that's the beauty of life is when you try, when you don't have to, Imagine it when it's when you're telling something that actually happened, you know. So I, I steal them from people. It's not really stealing. It's like boring and I don't know. But I don't I don't say people's names. It's just. Uh, but so sometimes I do that. Some other times I read a lot. I'm, I I always say to my students because sometimes I I teach songwriting classes and I always tell them you cannot be a good writer if you're not a good reader. And I really think that um, that's very important. So I read a lot. Um, but more than anything, I'm very connected to the out, to the outside world. You know, the other day this friend of mine said, "Oh, I cry too much. I'm always crying. I'm very emotional." And I and I said, and I started thinking, "There's no such thing as crying too much." I think so. So then I wrote a poem about that. So that's what I do. You know, some people tell me things, and I'm like, mm, "I'm going to use that." So I guess <laughs> I do that a lot. Oh, that's fabulous. So you're just reflecting life as you hear it. 
Yeah, and uh, and then I showed her the poem, and she's like, "Oh my God, I'm gonna have to be very careful what I say around you." So, but um, I think it's almost the same thing, you know. I do now. Uh, I'm, I'm a very big fan of photography, but now I went back to the analogic photography. To the, and so I have my camera, and I have 36 pictures that I can take. So now, uh, because I have 36 pictures, and I, I'm not taking pictures with my phone or or with my digital camera. I'm very careful about what I choose to photograph. So now the way I look at the world, you know, it's totally different. Because I see each thing and I'm like really looking carefully. And I think that's the thing that I do in my writing as well. I hear carefully. Uh, my friends say that I'm a good listener because of that, I guess. I memorize all their stories. Everything they tell me that happened to them, I memorize every detail, you know. Because I think I'm a good listener, and I want to be, and that's, that's maybe like because also it's good for my my job. I don't know, but um, but I do that the same way I do with, with photography. I think I look at the world, and I want to see each detail, and I think then I I bring that into my writing and into my music. I think everyone should look a little deeper into everything. Now we are photographing everything, and we are not really looking at anything, and. So I think that happens as well when people are talking. We are all talking at the same time, and then you don't really listen. So I think those things are really important when you want to be a writer, I think. Indeed, and I think that's a marvellous analogy, actually, for, for the way you write and, and for the sound of your songs. And I think uh, it will be a great treat for us to, to hear you when, when you finally get here. So you have a busy program of uh, performances yeah. coming up and I think that we're very Yeah, but much... I can't wait really. It has been months that I'm like, oh, okay, one more month. <laughs> and now it's just a few weeks away, so I can't wait. <laughs> That's lovely and it's delightful, Louisa. Look, thank you so much for <laughs> making this time available. Thank you available. very much. It's been so, so lovely thank to hear you. the story of your songwriting and I look forward to seeing you when you're here, so many thanks. Okay, thank you very much. I hope to see you there too. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas, and change makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter.
to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have Dr. Tasha Finney. So she is an architectural urbanist, senior research tutor, and program lead on the City Design MA, School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art. Her work is focused on housing, the city, and urban change, as well as alternate housing and neighbourhood models. Tasha, welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. So I wanted to ask... Over your career and your time looking at urbanism and housing, how have you seen society's understanding of home change, and particularly like our relationship to home and homely spaces? Well, I think um, certainly when I started my graduate work, so in the early 2000s, home domesticity, if I understand that to be a kind of socio-political condition, that animates home um, wasn't something that we really talked about. We just accepted the idea that um, home, the housing we lived in, the modern family that we existed in, you know, two parents and and gender-specific children, um, was an unquestioned ahistorical fact. And I think what's transforming more and more with a more and more amplification and intensity more recently is a dissatisfaction with that and a, and a searching around for how we find our way out of it and a recognition of the relationship between the spatial performance of our housing and our lived subjectivities and our relationship to ourselves and the spaces in which we constitute ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so how do you see, uh, moving forwards, our relationship with housing changing? Oh, I think we have to, we're going to, hopefully, <laughs> my, my hope is that we're going to find the space and the conditions of experimentation to begin to work out what new spatial arrangements are and what new relationships we can develop with each other that aren't dependent on blood ties, that aren't, but still are focused on questions of intimacy and care. And that enable us to find that with different group, different 
kinds of people from different generations um, focused on different things, particularly when it comes to questions of addressing um, all of the complexities that are coming with climate change. So on that topic of alternate housing models, we're starting Mm. to see many more cooperative housing developments start to emerge, particularly within Europe. What do you think this is expressing about shifts in social norms and what is this a reaction to? Ah, So in one way, people will tell you that it's a reaction to housing affordability. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, of course, there's an element of truth in that. But I think the other thing that increasingly it's responding to is a craving that we have for new Um, relationships with each other, Mm. new levels of intimacy and care. I think ironically, just at the moment where on the one hand we have the internet enabling us to work as more and more remotely from each other, to work at home, Mm. to work regionally, to do all these things, and equally more and more um, we find the new housing that we're producing for ourselves is fully isolating us as individuals within the group. So each bedroom has an ensuite. We don't even share family bathrooms anymore. Mm. We're craving our collective life together. Mm. So I think in some ways the housing that we're uh, – this – Cooperative housing and, the, and new new housing like Nightingale, like the Bow Group, and is really allowing us to begin to explore what those collective possibilities are mm. again. So, to people who are not as familiar with Bow Group, and what yeah. is the Bow Group? Ah, uh, the Bow Group is this fantastic. Uh, it's called a completion cooperative that was started in Germany initially in cities like Berlin to um, to uh, address. Um, remaining uh, holes in the urban fabric in the very dense um, courtyard block urban fabric of a city like Berlin that was still had these remnant holes from World War Two, mm. And it was a, a mechanism that enabled the um, owner of the land, which was often the state, to put, to put out a call for expressions of interest for groups to get together and make a claim over um, taking, hold, uh, taking control of that land and building housing on it for themselves. And so it was usually apartments mm. um, and the land would be given away at you know almost no cost Mm. Um, and the group and it's a completion cooperative because the group will pull resources uh, they're led by an architect they'll be a cooperative up to the point of the completion of the building and then there's an open question about whether they continue as a cooperative or they just revert to a standard ownership model Mm. now many of them choose to continue on as as a cooperative and that, that obviously has a whole lot of governance consequences and things for the way they live together but what's been really interesting about it is that they've, it's only been around for 20 years. Um, they produce under 10% of housing in Germany, mm-hmm. and they're having a marked effect on what the consumer of housing, new new buyers of housing are demanding of mainstream developers in Germany. Mm. And so they've been able to, and because what, and for us in the MA City Design at the Royal College of Art, what's very interesting about these projects is that they're a eccentric client group led by an architect who used the design process as a mechanism for negotiating their differences mm-hmm. rather than the standard development model, which is lowest common denominator, let's maximise our exposure to what the market wants and let's try nothing new. Mm-hmm. And so this group come together and they'll, and they'll, they'll negotiate and discuss over some period of time what it is that they want to be together and how they want to do things differently, which is resulting in these really interesting innovations in housing. And I guess by nature that introduces a, like a level of diversity within the housing stock. Yeah, it's, by, a, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. 
And so in addition to like housing, we're starting to see housing used to help address sort of issues of loneliness and yeah, isolation yeah, in the community. Yeah, yeah. How can also housing contribute positively to the ecological crisis? Uh, Seeing the, something as more this than is, just the human kind. Yeah, yeah. This is where I think the greatest potential of it is. And, and I don't even know what this means yet. I mean, uh, the whole thing about this innovation in, in housing is that we, we, it's very difficult to know in advance who will become as a consequence of the transformation. Mm. And so we can speculate on it and, and we need to begin to find the forums to do that. But I think that one of the most interesting possibilities of it is to say um, we need to think the, – the, the question of climate change is much more – it's a systemic and an institutional problem. It's not a problem that we can address as individuals through things like recycling, though, of course, this helps. Mm. So we need to ask questions about every aspect at multiple scales of what we're doing institutionally, and a huge one is housing and the way that we're organising housing. And we need to ask that question of institutional forms such as the modern family that we take for granted, but we need to also ask it of how we accommodate um, and uh, centralise or decentralise the human in more complex um, ecological um, understandings. Mm. So how do we take account of um, the non-human mm. as an extension of our kinship systems? Yeah. And I think we've got an enormous amount to learn from indigenous structures of knowledge that would never isolate a thing from a complex ecology of relationship. And we need to experiment with decentering ourselves in mm. terms of the needs of that complex system and then saying, what would housing look like if we decentered our own needs? Mm. And it's a, it's just a, it's, it's a design problem in a sense, right? About designing that as a network of, of cognition almost. And sort of reconsidering what our priorities are. And, right. Yeah. But also it's a design problem around, um, around what would housing look like if the prior, if the, priority was, you know, and I think about this in, in the context of where my fam, you know, just where I'm familiar with in Sydney, for example, I'm originally from Sydney, and we have a very specific uh, cabbage palm in the neighbourhood that my family live in. And I found myself the other day thinking, you know, and they like to live in the drainage armpits of um, the coastal fringe of mm. Sydney. And I was thinking the other day, how would you, how would you decentre ourselves and recenter that Palm and mm. all of its relationships with the fruit flying foxes, with the, the possums, with mm. the cicadas, with all of these different. How would you decenter us from the question of housing and centre it? And what would housing begin to look like? And I, I, it's just such an interesting design problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and before finishing up, I wanted to ask, so in relation to particularly considering housing as an environmental sort of, I guess you could say almost machine, yeah. um, and sort of thinking about the bow group and models, why yeah. has Australia been much slower, do you think, uh, in comparison to European countries in particular? Uh, the advantage that the European countries have, and people will tell you that it's cultural, and I just think that, I don't think that's right, um, is that they have in their de their legal and regulatory DNA a history of cooperative ownership that means that it's easy for them when these things, these discursive um, ideas shift 
just shift into new modes of being together. So the Craftwork uh, Cooperative in Zurich in Switzerland, for example, started in the 1980s as part of a youth anarchist movement, first of all directed at questions of um, the city and youth access to the city, and then they realised they could do better mm. by producing housing, and they've lent on a 19th century agricultural cooperative. So they have that. It's very hard for us to do that because we don't have it in our DNA. And as mm. anyone out there that's listening will know about Nightingale, it took a decade of really hard work mm. transforming local law so that it could begin to even operate like the Baugruppen system in, in Germany. So the work that has to be done, and this is work that all of us that are either professionally trained need to be doing is to is to be transforming that legal and regulatory environment to enable it to happen yeah absolutely well tasha thank you very so much for coming on to the show my pleasure uh that was dr tasha finney she's an architectural urbanist senior research tutor and program lead on the city design ma school of architecture at the royal College. the taranta festival is back for five days of music dance visual arts and food celebrating Southern Italian and Mediterranean culture. Featuring, direct from Italy, the voice of Enza Pagliara, Vittario Mucci, Tarantula Garganica, and the pick of local acts including Alara, Delirium, Santa Taranta, Opapato, Arte Canela, Cavisha Mazzella, plus the launch of the Melbourne Taranta Orchestra, and more. Melbourne Taranta Festival, from the 11th to the 15th of March. Full program and tickets available online via trybooking.com and tarantafestival.com.au. Abalati. The Taranta Festival is a 3CR supporter. I don't know how to make you see.
And you're listening to 3CR. Now we're going to swing into our next interview. So the Morrison government has made it known that the owners of the Vales Point coal-fired power plant are likely to get a million dollar, uh, an $11 million grant to upgrade their facility in the May budget. The Australian Conservation Foundation has come out against it. Uh, we have a familiar face in studio, Susan Harter, in the studio to tell us why this allocation would be an insult uh, to fire-affected communities. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Um, so I thought I'd do a little, something a little bit different today. I just want to uh, start with some arguments from more conservative or rural perspectives. You know, some of the some that have been raised with me and also the mainstream media. And I wanted to explore these concerns because we don't often hear them on 3CR and purely out of my own personal interest. I want to know how to rebut them in a rational manner. Anyway, drawing back into the recent budget allocation, Scott Morrison has noted that the upgrade to Vale Point is only one very small coal project. Um, is he right? Is this upgrade for Vale Point not going to make that much impact on our trading scheme or on our emissions? Well, Vales Point is amongst the 10 highest emitters in the entire electricity sector, so it actually is a significant polluter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2017-18, so that's um, a couple years ago, it emitted around 7 million tons of, of carbon pollution. So mm-hmm. it is a significant emitter. Alongside that, so you know, that means it's driving climate change. Alongside that, it also emits quite a lot of toxic pollutants. So it dumps heavy metals into Lake Macquarie. Mm-hmm. Um, it has toxic ash dams that have asbestos and other quite dangerous toxic pollutants in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, tox- those ash dams aren't even lined, so they pose a threat to groundwater. Um, folks in the community have been told not to eat much fish out of that lake. So um, not to mention the fact that it's responsible for exceeding air pollution limits and mm-hmm. other things. So uh, from a purely climate perspective, yes, it's a significant polluter, but it has other aspects to it mm-hmm. um, that make it problematic for the community and for people, <coughs> excuse me, people in general. And could we go into the, that, those community impacts? Is it just what, what is it? What, what is its community impact? Well, so that that includes, you know, releasing air, air pollution. So right, yep. there's greenhouse pollution, which is driving climate change, but there's also toxic, no, noxious air pollution. Mm. I think we just got a taste of that during the bushfires when people were told not to exercise outside and you saw a lot of folks wearing air, ma- you know, masks on their face and other things. So there are pollutants, some of which we don't see, mm. um, that are quite dangerous that can get into your system um, impact, uh, especially children and, and, and elderly people, especially, but everyone. Uh, so there are direct health impacts of, mm. of air pollutants, and we know that several thousand Australians die prematurely every year due to air pollution, and a lot of kids and a lot of people um, have early onset asthma and, and other issues. So there are a whole lot of issues here, but again, from a purely climate perspective, yes, it is a, a polluting generator. Mm. And like I said, it is amongst the top 10 biggest emitters. So all of that is a problem at a time when... Scientists globally are telling us that if we want to stand any chance at all of keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees, and even at this point to 2 degrees, we've got to start closing down coal-fired power plants. So that means we don't continue to keep them open with with funds like this. Mm. Um, What we do is we create some very some good plans so that we can carefully manage closures over time mm. so that we're not going to negatively impact communities or the electricity grid. Yeah, that's my, that leads into my second question. Whilst we are so reliant on these coal stations, there's been a large argument that we have the obligation to keep them going, going especially through taxpayer funding like mm. this um, budget, uh, especially when the economic benefit is so lucrative. Would mm. you kind of, uh, could you kind of 
discussed how climate, sorry, coal power is like uh, built into our, our business model of Australia. Like it's very much a cornerstone of our economy. Right. So it's true that Australia's economy has been built over many years on uh, electricity, you know, that's mm-hmm. been generated through primarily coal. Um, so that is true. But our coal-fired power plants were built a very, very long time ago. So right now they're quite old. You know, in general, the average life of a coal-fired power plant is around 29 years. And their design life means they could stay open longer, say, you know, 40 years. So we have a very old fleet. 75% of our coal-fired power plants are past their design life. So no matter how you look at it, mm. um, these things are old. They And they need to be closed. They will close. Mm. So, again, we need to plan for that. So it's really a false hope to tell communities that we should be able to just keep these things clunking along, that, that your jobs are safe forever, because that's just not the case. So that's true with coal-fired generators. Mm. We also export a lot of our coal. And what we do know that a lot of the countries that are importing our coal are mm. actively investing um, in a different future, because we know, again, it's polluting, and, and they've signed up to the Paris Agreement and need to decarbonize their own economy. So we're facing two things. Mm. Um, While we know that coal, again, yes, we're pumping it into our electricity system still, but we now have these fabulous technologies with renewable energy. They are now cheaper. Renewable energy, so uh, wind or solar, even combined now Mm. with storage, so pumped hydro or batteries, which that combination gives us everything that a coal-fired power plant can do. All of that same reliability, Mm. much more flexible, clean, and cheaper. So when you think about how we are going to need to replace all those coal-fired power plants, again, it's a false hope to be telling communities that they will be replaced with more coal because they simply won't. Mm. Um, investors are very clear on this, as are in our bank regulators and others that are saying, we are going to scrutinize you around your climate risk because investment in coal is now a very risky proposition. That's so, true. you know, for, so these communities, um, of Of course we need to look after them, and of course it's not a good thing that they're going to be impacted by this transition, Mm. but the transition is happening. Um, So the responsibility is about managing it well, not to create false hopes around the longevity of coal. Gotcha. And uh, another aspect of the story I wanted to bring in was Angus Taylor was the one to to promote this proposed grant uh, to Trevor Street Baker, the owner of Vales Point. who, Trevor Street, actually donated uh, more than $100,000 to the Liberal Party between 2018 to 2019. Uh, does, this, does he have the right to donate as a means of kind of looking out for his investment and stuff like that? Or is it more significant than that? You know, what's the dynamic going on with political donations and money in coal? Right. So I think if you think about how we want a democracy to work, Mm -hmm. um, where people have a fair go, have a fair say, that everyone is treated equally, that it it doesn't require you to be a massively wealthy person to have any kind of political influence or, um, you know, democratic rights, you would say that, no, of course, we don't want wealthy people to be able to put a whole lot of money into political donations and therefore have special influence or special access. And, And that is what we see with political donations. They're, they're not just handed over because it feels good. Um, that kind of money is handed to political parties for a very specific reason, and that is so that they can gain access. Mm. Um, so that is an inappropriate use of, of donations. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the way they, that, that's why they happen. But you know, you have to sort of ask the question, is that the kind of democracy we want? Mm. What we know about Trevor St. Baker, is that, yes, he donated quite a lot of money in the last election. 
In terms of the Vales Point Power Plant, he bought that plant for a million dollars from the New South Wales government in 2015. Right. It was not long after that revalued at $730 million. He got a massive payout. He is now listed on rich lists. Mm. Um, so this man made uh, hundreds of millions of dollars as part of uh, a company called Sunset Electricity. And he has then taken that money and started putting into political pockets to actually make more money. And as we see, um, he is just, he's now maybe going to get an additional $11 million for this mm. coal-fired power plant, which, like I say, he's already made a boatload on. Mm. And that power plant was staged to close in 2029. He's now saying he wants to keep it open to 2049. So all of these things, you know, are, are connected. He's made a lot of money already mm. um, through quite a questionable deal. Business practice. Yeah, yeah and now political donations... Um, so this is a huge issue. Mm. They're not super transparent in this country. They're not um, recorded immediately. Um, as we at the Australian Conservation Foundation recently went pouring through the political donation list that came out. So they do come out you know, annually. You have to sort of dig around. Um, mass, mass donations from the fossil fuel industry. And, and we'll all remember in the last federal election, Clive Palmer, um, $83 million, $83 million in political donations. Um, so that is trying to buy an election result. Yeah. And now is that, do we want that kind of money mm. um, in our elections, in our federal system, um, buying election results or buying influence? And I, I would say no. And we're seeing quite a lot, a lot of that from the fossil fuel industry in general. Absolutely. And touching on the last main claim of the um, ACF, uh, how does this decision or this budget allocation link back to fire affected communities. Could you kind of give us the, yeah, the, the idea behind that? Yeah, sure. So what we've seen since the bushfires is, is quite a lot of scientists mm -hmm. um, come out because that has been a question. Is this, um, were these bushfires even related to climate change? Are they not, you know, they're, they're fires. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to understand that connection. And we have now seen very clearly, uh, in fact, I just sat in a briefing a couple of days ago with the Bureau of Meteorology. What we know is that climate change, because it is um, driving temperatures, so we are mm -hmm. seeing hotter temperatures, we're seeing more heat extremes, um, and it is impacting rainfall in this country and drought. So we saw, you know, New South Wales, for example, has been entirely in drought for, for a long time. Mm. Uh, that state has been massively impacted by super dry conditions. So you see the combination. So what climate change is doing is it's creating conditions um, because of heat, because of these drying conditions. And these are projected to increase over time. So when we look at mm. rainfall patterns that are projected at various levels of global warming, Australia is one of the countries in the world that will be most impacted um, by things like extreme heat conditions and drying conditions. So, mm. so those bushfires are, in fact, connected to climate change in that it is driving those con conditions that is making our, our fire seasons uh, go much, much longer, um, that the condition of mm -hmm. the, the actual fires more extreme. Mm -hmm. We, where, the way we plan right now um, to address fires is now outdated. We have to rethink everything mm -hmm. um, in terms of how we resource and manage our, our bushfire. Mm. Thanks, Susan. So that, that's definitely a budget thing to keep on watching. Now, while you're in the studio, I want to get your quick thoughts on two other little environmental stories that have come out recently. Um, so there was Albanese's on the weekend on Insiders saying uh, good coal, referencing metallurgical coal. I, mm. I kind of wanted you to get the, the 101 on that. Is that. Can we believe him when he discusses <laughs> that? Yeah, so, uh, so there's 
kind of two basic types of coal, Mm -hmm. um, if you put them in two categories. There's thermal coal, which we burn for electricity. Um, So that is the stuff that we see going into, you know, our big coal-fired power plants. It's sort of shoveled in one side and Mm -hmm. um, pollution comes out the other along with electricity. And then there's metallurgical coal. So that's a a type of coal that actually is uh, used for things like steelmaking. So it goes into other types of manufacturing. We do export a lot of that coal um, to various countries that do use it for that that purpose. And I think the point he was making is that, um, well, A, um, he doesn't want to say, no, of course, we're going to have to stop exporting coal, even though we know that's the case. So I mm-hmm. think it's a, it's a very confused message saying, oh, of course, we're going to have climate change policy and we're going to um, deal with this massive global problem, and yet we're still going to be exporting our coal. Oh, yeah. um, there will be a, a point when um, we won't be exporting even that metallurgical coal mm. because there are lots of... Uh, Um, There are countries around the world actively working now on new technologies, for example, to create green steel through hydrogen. Um, Same thing, aluminium, for example, which is very energy intensive, um, could also be produced through a combination of different renewables and and storage or hydrogen. So we will see these things transition as well. Mm -hmm. When we talk about transitioning out of coal, certainly that thermal coal is the first off the rank. So we we do need to see even the IPCC, which is our big international body of of scientists that Mm. advise governments on on climate action, are saying the most important thing we need to do first off is to phase out of burning coal um, for electricity. Because once we clean up our electricity grids, everything that can come off those grids can be clean. Um, so, yeah, Albanese was was creating a bit of a confused picture there. And I think they will need to get a, a much clearer um, view in terms of where the ALP is going with, with coal yeah, and climate. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. I guess the main critique to come out of the uh, Greens was like, that's great, but you still don't have a plan for phasing <laughs> out other coal. That's right. Mm-hmm. We, we need to see a plan to phase out um, all coal, basically. But certainly thermal is a, is a very is urgent focus. starting point. Absolutely. <clears throat> Second one is the Climate Change Act. This is a bill that's going to go to Parliament 23rd of March mm. by independent uh, Zali Stegall. Uh, it provides a five-year plan to reduce emissions to zero, uh, net zero by 2050. Uh, I kind of just wanted to get your quick synopsis on that because that is uh, one that's worked in a lot of other countries. I mean, Britain's mm. been obviously a headway in that. Uh, yeah, do you think it could work in Australia? It's very much a bipartisan approach in other countries. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think part of what Zali Stegel was thinking, I can't speak for her, but it could create sort of, you know, a, an end to this massive political divide. So mm. trying to find a framework. So basically what she's put up is more of a framework mm. tied to that long-term goal as opposed to this is how you will do it. So it's not right. a whole set of policies, but it basically says if we can legislate this, it'll put us into a five-yearly, um, you know, requirement mm. of of putting up carbon budgets and then five yearly reviews um, that will be tied to a, a plan, so to proper policy. And and there will also be a, a climate change commission mm. that will be responsible for... Actually give it some teeth and regulate Yeah, give it. it some teeth that will give it... So right now we have what's called the Climate Change Authority. This would be mm. sort of like that, but, but add a few extra elements to it. So it would be advising on that that carbon budget, um, reviewing to make sure we're, we're sticking to it. Um, so it basically gives us a bit of structure to get to this long-term target 
of 2050, uh, which is net zero. What we know in Australia, so even though the government, the Morrison government, is avoiding that target, every single state and ter territory has committed yeah. to it. So mm -hmm. basically every state and territory in this country is working to that target anyways. Right. So it's almost ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah, uh, it is ridiculous that they just can't quite say the words, yes, we're committing to this, and that's mm. very political. It's not yeah. practical. Yeah. Um, so Zoli Stegall has taken that, said, okay, we, we do need something to anchor our actions and to direct us, and then we will create this commission and we'll create these five yearly reviews. And there are two sides to it, both adaptation, so building resilience. Um, so there's a, a section of it on that. And again, mm -hmm. five yearly reviews and risk assessments and you build in plans. And then the other one is pollution reduction. So yeah. five yearly reviews, you build in plans. That's basically the heart of it. And so it's a framework and mm -hmm. it's a practical framework. Um, could could you do more? Sure. But yes. is it a good you know starting point in terms of breaking through this political divide? Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what the debate is in mm. Parliament around that bill. And I would say what we need to see is a debate because there's a chance the government won't even allow it to get to the floor. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure the Australian Conservation Foundation will be following the story heavily yes. so we can tune in for you for news. Thank you so much for joining us in studio, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Goongarra Environment Centre and Wildlife of the Central Highlands have started an email action for the threatened Greater Glider. Over 25% of the glider's habitat has been burnt in the fires and 90% of areas set aside. The Taranta Festival is back for five days of music, dance, visual arts and food, celebrating Southern Italian and Mediterranean culture. Featuring direct from Italy, the voice of Enza Pagliara, with Dario Mucci, Tarantula Garganica, and the pick of local acts including Alara, Delirium, Santa Taranta, Opapato, Arte Canela, Cavisha Mazzella, plus the launch of the Melbourne Taranta Orchestra, and more. Melbourne Taranta Festival, from the 11th to the 15th of March. Full program and tickets available online via trybooking.com and tarantafestival.com.au. Abalati. The Taranta Festival is a 3CR supporter. The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bangala country. BHP is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The Radioactive Exposure Tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Bose Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. The 
Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfasts. It's currently 8am and we'll now be joining Andrew Bartlett, who is a former Queensland Senator from the Brisbane Assange Action Queensland Group, to discuss the current situation and movement to release Julian Assange, who was extradited to court in London this week. Andrew joined others at the British Consulate in Brisbane this past Monday to protest for Assange to be brought back to Australia. Assange began publishing secret American military and diplomatic documents that were provided by Chelsea Manning in 2010. Chelsea was a former Army intelligence analyst and was convicted in 2013 of leaking the documents. Assange has now been indicted on 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act for his role in obtaining and publishing secret military and diplomatic documents. He could face up to 175 years in prison if found guilty on these charges. Amidst massive backlash on Western governments for lack of free press, protection of journalists and whistleblowers, the US has claimed reporting on all journalism is not an excuse for criminal activities or a license to break ordinary criminal laws. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, good day. Thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, good to talk to you. I guess we'd all like to know, first of all, what people were actually protesting for in Brisbane on Monday and how did it go? Well, there's a lot of people in, in many places around the world protesting uh, basically for the freedom of Julian Assange and the, the British government can do that right now. He's only in jail uh, because they've decided to keep him in jail. Uh, the courts decided to keep him in jail whilst this extradition hearing continues and that's going to take uh, months at least, probably much longer. And uh, he should be freed straight away. This is clearly uh, a political uh, persecution. He's a political prisoner and uh, that in itself um, is enough to uh, dismiss uh, requests for extradition and there's plenty of other things that have already come to light which show that um, you know, this whole process is a farce. Uh, so we certainly have been directly calling on the British government to, do, to act immediately and of course alongside that we're wanting to um, ramp up the pressure and calling on everybody else to ramp up the pressure on uh, all Australian politicians and particularly the Australian government uh, to... Uh, make a lot more noise about uh, freeing Julian Assange and uh, even just about the basic uh, appalling mistreatment he's been getting uh, whilst he's been in a maximum security jail uh, at the uh, you know at the behest of the British government mm, definitely we'll get back to those that last comment in a second but I thought we'd just start with the protests um, there were a range of speakers at the protest including yourself civil rights activist Kieran O'Reilly, activist and filmmaker Dean Jeffries and a few other civil rights activists. You all and the protesters sought to get a response from UK Consular General Miss Joan Freeman for the immediate release of Assange. Have you had any response from herself or any other politicians or representatives at all? No, and that's that's no great surprise. I mean, they did get a letter to the, the British Consulate uh, um, 
been part of groups of people who've <laughs> tried to deliver letters to the British consulate before, and uh, basically as soon as you know they're coming, they lock the door, uh, which is, you know, a bit rude, frankly. I mean, it's just a letter. Um, but uh, there was uh, the same thing happened, and uh, a lot of people this time, not just a few, um, uh, blocked the foyer, and mm. up, uh, it's up on the ninth floor, I think it is, in the building. So uh, we actually had some help from... Um, Serena Russo, I don't know if um, your listeners would know her, but she's quite well known in Queensland as a mm. uh, very wealthy uh, person that's uh, made a lot of money out of being a job service provider, mm. uh, not normally known as a uh, supporter of uh, causes like this, but uh, it's actually she owns the building, so uh, I think uh, she helped enable the, the letter to get delivered which was uh, at least something but yeah. uh, but no no responses yet no a few beacons of hope but no of course um i guess that was a no-brainer that unfortunately no one would uh comment or help the cause so do you think your voices have been heard at all though like have these protests this last week have they been making any sort of waves anywhere Oh, absolutely. And look, if you look at the crowds uh, all around the world, and there's some huge crowds. I mean, obviously, big ones in London at the moment where the trial's happening, but uh, very large crowds in many parts of the, the world, and not just the Western world. And that's because people recognise uh, a that, that you know what Julian Assange's done uh, has obviously been for the benefit of the, the public good in releasing details, publishing details, uh, not just of crimes by the U.S. government, but by many other governments and corporations. Uh, exposing major wrongdoings and blatant crimes, mm-hmm. and uh, we need you know that sort of transparency of what uh, the people that that uh, literally rule us uh, are actually up to is is crucial. So uh, many people are doing that, and of course we have seen you know speaking of some uh, odd uh, fellow travellers here, we've seen some parliamentarians, including uh, people like George Christensen from uh, Northern Queensland. Uh, uh, not normally associated with human rights causes, but uh, going with Andrew Wilkie to travel to London uh, to take the message direct to the British government and emphasise and magnify that message to the to the people over there. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of people getting on board, but uh, you know, having said that, I'm I'm still very disappointed that there's not uh, a huge number of Australian parliamentarians from across the political spectrum making a lot of noise. There's a parliamentary friendship group that's that's finally formed, and you know. I'm just been uh, stuck in confinement for six, seven plus years now. Um, when I was back in the Senate not too long ago, it was still a lot of reluctance from most people to, to really openly talk about and p- promote his plight. I mean, Scott Ludland from the Greens was a huge... Um, a magnificently effective advocate for Julian Assange and the principals involved, but once he left the parliament, there weren't many others that were willing to stick their head up uh, in public. But uh, there's about 10 or 11 now that are, are pulling together. That's, you know, out of 226 federal MPs, that's still not a lot. Um, but uh, I feel that momentum is building, and even the evidence that came out yesterday on the first day of the hearing, uh, even about just the, the really... Uh, brutal mistreatment of Julian Assange in jail it should be enough in itself to get more people on board to say that this is just he shouldn't be treating people this way and you know our Australian government stood up and spoken out in many other cases before uh, of people who uh, um, you know have been far less courageous than what Julian Assange has done and everybody remembers I think still the case of David Hicks uh, was stuck in Guantanamo Bay without trial for a number of years, and uh, that was the, the Howard government eventually, due to public pressure, that you know eventually uh, agreed to to push 
uh, and lobby the US government uh, to let him free, which they eventually did. And uh, there's many cases since then. Peter Grester in Egypt's uh, another one. Um, so the fact the Australian government is doing nothing on this uh, is, is just unacceptable. Yeah, and you've made it quite loud and clear that this is what you've thought. And um, in media releases, you've said you're obviously quite disappointed to see so few politicians willing to stand up and speak out in support of Julian Assange, with you mentioning, as you just said before, George Christensen being the only MP in Queensland to be part of the Julian Assange support group. You, you said yourself you're questioning it, and obviously you're voicing your disappointment. Do you, can you comment on why you actually think Australian politicians aren't getting involved? Uh, look, I think the character assassination against Julian Assange over many years has been very calculated, very deliberate, and very persistent. And uh, that, you know, the the allegations regarding uh, uh, what charges were never laid, but rape allegations uh, in Sweden uh, made a lot of people reluctant to want to be seen to be speaking out for him. And uh, those charges are now dropped. Uh, he was available for questioning for years, and Swedish government never was never questioned him. Um, and all that time, he said that he didn't want to go back to Sweden because he was fearful that there'd be an indictment and extradition request from the US waiting for him. And, of course, we've seen that he was right all along on that. Um, and I think since that's happened, since um, since he was dragged out of the Ecuador embassy mm-hmm. um, and the extradition and charges on 17 uh, serious charges, uh, espionage acts of the US, from the US, uh, people can see now that he, that he was right in his fears. Mm-hmm. And I think more people are realising as well that, uh, you know, it's not about, you know, his, his personal character. People can argue about that if they like, but it's it's not actually the point here. Uh, I mean, he's, he's a journalist. Some people say he's not. And frankly, even that's not the point. He's published, as did uh, The Guardian, New York Times and others, uh, war crimes, details of war crimes and many other things. Um, and if this is allowed to continue, let alone succeed, uh, the chilling principle, the chilling effect, rather, on uh, not just journalists and publishers, but basically anybody that wants to be a whistleblower, uh, it will be huge. And, and we know there are parallels here in Australia at the moment. The, the uh, prosecution of Witness K and his lawyer, which exposed illegal acts by the Australian government in bugging the uh, East Timor government to get a commercial advantage over negotiations over uh, Timor Sea gas. We've got the um, uh, charging of a uh, military lawyer, David McBride, who uh, for allegedly leaking uh, uh, details about Australian uh, war crimes in Afghanistan. And we've had the AFP raids on the journalists, the ABC journalists that published that. Uh, we've had AFP raids on other journalists. So we're seeing this happening here in Australia as well, where the people who expose the wrongdoing get targeted, get raided, get charged, uh, and the people who are actually committing the crimes uh, get away with it and in some cases prosper. Uh, this with Julian Assange is the same thing, but on a, a massively larger scale. He's facing uh, life imprisonment in solitary confinement uh, in the US uh, and is being uh, tortured, and that's been a finding the UN uh, already. Uh, even just yesterday, uh, evidence came out that uh, whilst in jail, and he's in a maximum security jail, he's like he's he's not a he's not violent uh, political prisoner. He's he's not a, a, a serial killer. Uh, yet uh, he's been kept in isolation 22 hours a day. He's been denied visitors. Been denied the to even converse with other prisoners there until just a few weeks ago. Uh, just the day before his trial, uh, he was handcuffed 11 different times, stripped naked twice, changed cell five times, just within one day. Uh, that's the sort of, um, you know, de- denied exercise rights for months. Uh, you know, 
nobody should be treated that way and certainly the Australian government should be speaking out against any Australian being treated that way as a, as a bare minimum. Definitely. So it really does go back to this principle of exposure and transparency and that's really what I think the protesters and the people are fighting against. Um, as you said, um, this brings up the issue of governments needing to defend a free press, journalists and whistleblowers. Western governments have been known for their kind of pinnacle of democracies and freedom rights for years. This case has, in a way, sort of tarnished the West's entire image. How do you, do you think that organisations around the world, right, where the grassroots or those connected to the same level as perhaps UN bodies or something similar, should be working to overcome these issues to save sort of the idea of democracy and uncover politicians' true, true agendas, especially with significantly important missions. Um, do you believe that these organisations could help this cause at all? Is that where you think we should start with? Oh, absolutely. And look, a lot of people are doing a lot of things. I feel like more people could have done more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that character assassination, you know, orchestrated, uh, has clearly been part of why uh, people you'd normally expect to speak out have, have uh, either kept their mouths shut or, or kept the tone very low, mm. the volume very low. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's Amnesty International or a witness, uh, not a witness, but a, a um, observer at this trial. Uh, Reporters Without Borders have been very active on it for many years, to their credit. So at, at that sort of level, some of those large uh, groups, um, uh, major bodies in the European Union have been speaking out about it. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, we've all got a role to play here, and we, we saw that, you know, with David Hicks, with the recent case with the uh, uh, the footballer, uh, mm. um, I think based in Melbourne, actually, uh, Hakeem Al-Arabi, mm. uh, was a refugee from Bahrain who got detained in Thailand and was at serious risk of being sent back to, uh, to face... Um, a jail and potential persecution and a huge public uh, outcry about that. And the Australian government did act on that. And, you know, there's behind-the-scenes activity as well as public statements, but there's no doubt, and everybody knows, that the, uh, was uh, a significant role of the Australian government and diplomatic pressure and political pressure and public pressure all combined mm. uh, to get him released and get him back to Australia. And... Uh, uh, that's a really good example of, um, you know, the, the role that we can all play in just saying this is just outrageous and just do something now and do everything you can and speak out loud. And uh, the more, I think particularly now, the more people speak out and help break down, because a lot of people still, you know, some of the interviews I've been doing with, with journos are still like, oh, well, you know, he, he was charged, wasn't he? And he ran away from, absconded from charges and she never was charged. Uh, people thinking that... Uh, you know, he abandoned Australia and, and disowned Australia and he's not even an Australian citizen anymore. All these sorts of things. It's a massive misinformation campaign um, that's been put out there. Um, and even uh, in the hearing yesterday, the, the prosecution from the US, you know, a lot of the, the, the reasoning they've put forward is uh, allegations that have already been publicly debunked over and over again that you know the allegation he just dumped all this information with no names redacted uh, when it was actually a, a journalist that accidentally revealed the, the password to the unredacted files um, and Julian Assange himself uh, worked assiduously to, to redact names and ensure people weren't harmed from releasing of this data so all of this misinformation the more uh, people can speak out and just counter that time and time again with the facts. I think it'll, it, will, it will build and it needs to build because it's, it's not just about this one man. It's about this, this um, principle and uh, it, it really is a, a 
key moment, I believe, in, in the direction uh, of this real growing concern for increasing authoritarianism uh, in governments around the world. And we're seeing that, of course, uh, here in Australia with endless efforts to increase the power of security agencies, to increase the power of surveillance, to increase the severity of sentences and the ability of governments to to um, spy on their own citizens and then um, basically uh, charge them with whatever they like and have very limited legal rights to to fight back and and that's before you get into the you know the orchestrated um, character assassinations that you get um, from from governments and security agencies and uh, their friendly media outlets so it's a, it's a it's a critical thing a critical principle that that will affect all of us is already affecting all of us but is only going to get worse if um uh, if people like Assange or uh, um, the persecution against him succeeds. Definitely, and I guess it does trickle down to Australia really feeling like our government has sort of has failed us, and this is just pouring down into, as you said, um, tapping of phones and the government having the rights now to perhaps like evade our privacy even more. So obviously yesterday the ABC released footage of Assange surveillance um, footage and recordings by the US intelligence of Assange and his lawyers in private conversations while in London. Um, they knew cameras were on but were told sound was not being recorded and said they had no idea the material was being shared to outside sources outside of the embassy. Now information is also coming in, like you've said, um, of Assange experiencing strip searches and being handcuffing an excessive amount of times. Lawyers have said that this treatment could hinder the proceedings. Even James Lewis, a lawyer representing the US government, has called to maintain fairness. Um, to a lot of people, a feeling of helplessness is brought up over this. And everything you've just said in that last comment as well sort of does come down to this. But how can we, how can our listeners help this cause? Like how, I guess people are feeling very helpless right now. Um, how would you recommend us, just some casual Melbourne uh, goers, how do we help this cause? Look, a few things, and you know, one of the best antidotes to feeling powerless is to join with others and realise how many others agree with you and how many others are fighting this issue, uh, and that's around the world. Uh, there's there's um, you know, thousands and thousands of people, anonymous people, to some of the, the best-known people around the world pushing back against this, so uh, join in that way in whatever way you feel um, you're able to. Uh, I think a key thing, I mean, it sounds old-fashioned, but uh, it's still a really valid approach. Write and write a freaking letter if you can. Put a stamp on it. Politicians are so surprised by getting actual letters these days. They almost um, pull out of their chair. They pay a lot more attention than to emails just because of the novelty value of a piece of paper. Uh, but even an email if you can, but uh, write to your local representative, your state ones as well, because the state, you know, you know, they're all there at the basic level, all their representatives, whatever their political colour, should be ensuring that uh, the, the basic rights of uh, Australian citizens are, are protected wherever they are in the world, as well as those basic rights of freedom of speech. Uh, you know, this guy is a political prisoner, and that's something, you know, organisations like Amnesty International are most famous for that, but plenty of others. Uh, something as basic as people being in prison for their political beliefs, for their you know, freedom of speech, um, for exposing wrongdoing, for you know, the targeting of whistleblowers. It's just... Uh, you know, something we've always got to fight back against. Um, but beyond that, you know, look, I, I think a key thing with this is, is spreading the facts on it. So to uh, get online, find a few of the, the key groups. There's a group called Courage Foundation on, uh, online that have uh, produced a lot of, um, of the facts around this. Uh, it's a website, uh, defend, uh, wikileaks, defend.wikileaks.org. 
um, that has a lot of the facts that counter all the misinformation because I think that's one of been the biggest challenges with this issue is the massive torrents of misinformation and falsehoods uh, to try and discredit Julian Assange that makes people feel like, oh, well, um, you know, he somehow or other deserves it and frankly even if 1% wouldn't matter uh, in my view, that you know nobody should be persecuted in this way. That basic thing, and at least a fair trial. That the case you mentioned of his his, his conversations with his lawyers in another country's embassy being bugged uh, by the U.S. being bugged on behalf of the U.S. Mm-hmm. and the CIA. I mean, that in itself should make this trial invalid. Um, uh, when when that sort of total perversion of due process happens, so you know every single one of these shattering of uh, basic legal principles of basic fairness of basic due process um, needs to be fought back against now so it doesn't become just accepted as, oh, well, that's just the way the world is. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll just have to stop you there, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, I wanted to just bring up a few quick little news stories of interest before we close up tonight. So the first one is a great environmental success mm-hmm. this week. Extremely exciting. Jess, would you like to announce it? Uh, yes, why not? Um, so Econor has scrapped their plans um, to drill for oil in the Great Australian, but this mm. is... So exciting, yeah. This is massive. And it's something that uh, has been led quite heavily by activists Mm -hmm. uh, around the world, in Australia and also uh, Equinor's home state, Norway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... It's interesting as well because they've come out, they've actually pulled out of the $200 million project uh, saying that, and I love this, it is not commercially competitive. <laughs> so that's kind of been their statement, which is very, very PR managed statement. But um, it has been, they, has, they have also reported that there was a huge amount of environmental pressure yes. leading up to this yeah. decision. Yeah. So, it's great to see. I'd just like to add though. Mm. I really like this quote um, yep. from David Ritter from Greenpeace. Please do. Never doubt the power and determination of the Australian people. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So that's, that is a 
great win for, um, mm-hmm. for Australian conservation. The second one I want to bring up is Victoria is set to um, introduce some new recycling things. Mm-hmm. So since uh, China said it wouldn't take our recycling, which is very fair, <laughs> uh, Australia's had a little bit of a meltdown mm-hmm. and its infrastructure has realised that it's not so strong. So Victoria has actually started... Um, bringing in some much-needed policy, which is a little late, but whatever, <laughs> uh, with a container deposit scheme com- coming in, which is very exciting. So start saving your bottles. And the uh, second one is a new bin for glass uh, recycling. Mm. So it's a mauve colour. Yeah, we were talking about that before, how exciting the colour of that bin will be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the last thing I think is super important is tonight on Four Corners, there will be a coverage mm. of boys, the Boys Club kind mm. of thing, uh, looking at some of the... Uh, cultural issues uh, we saw on St. Kevin's, uh, that, that, that video that the went train. viral last year, the train. Yes. And the comments um, making. Yeah, so if anyone doesn't know, that was misogynistic comments. Uh, and it, it was emblematic of a much yeah. larger toxic masculinity. It, yeah, it has been coming out that other schools, yeah. private boys schools, are also joining in on that. So Absolutely. And so apart from that, um, our guests on the show today were Tasha Finley, Susan Harter, and Andrew Bartlett. We will have all of the links in the description. Otherwise, have a good Wednesday. And we'll see you next week. (laughs) 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.